Here's Neymar now, Cavani is there. And Saint-Etienne has surely won it in the 89th minute. Calou for Cavano. Oh, what a strike. An absolute beauty for Florian Tobac. Kylian Mbappe wraps it up. The fixture list is out, cup final preparations are underway and French football is at last edging towards a restart. Welcome along to Le Bourgeois, the official Ligue 1 podcast where we are taking advantage of this extended break to bring you a series of special shows. After the PSG and Marseille specials this week, we feature France's third representative in next season's Champions League, Stade René. the Breton anthem that greets Rennes before every match at Roson Park. This is a big football club, a cultural institution. But in modern times, Rennes have become known as the Nearly Men, twice losing cup finals to their pesky neighbours Gangon and narrowly missing out on Champions League qualification. But all of that seems to have changed now, helping me to determine if Rennes have shaken the loser tag for good and are on their way to becoming a force in the French game is an exceptional panel, starting with Robbie Thompson. Hi, Robbie. Hello, Matt. Hello, everyone. Pleasure to be here. Ren, uh, are France's Bayer Leverkusen? Bayer Leverkusen. Or Hector Cooper. Exactly. Yeah, so we've got Robbie. We've got all the, all the regulars back in action today. Uh, David Crossan from his Paris flat. Hi, Dave. Hi, Matt. Hi, everyone. Dave, uh, recovering from Newcastle's FA Cup exit. Never mind, never mind. Arsenal will sort City out in the semi-finals. Andy Scott is um, just across the city of Paris. How are you, Andy? I'm not too bad, Matt. Thanks very much. How are you? Good. Great to have Andy Scott back on. We know he's got a soft spot for Wren. Loves a, a trip to Roseland Park. Let's just uh, start by um, recounting our, our, our best memories, our, our strongest memories of Stad Rene, just so that you know. Um, these guys have been commentating Ligue 1 for many, many years now. They've had many a, a Sunday night or a Sunday uh, afternoon more often commentating. Ren, let's start with Dave. Tell us, what does Stade René mean to you? It's tricky to define Stade René. I think that's what makes them an interesting topic for conversation today. Um, you know, us in the media, we do have a, a rather sheltered and spoilt life. And one of the things we like to talk about, and Ian Holyman, our executive producer, loves talking about a good media buffet. So I remember the first game I went to at Rennes and being delighted with the range there. The galette saucisse everywhere. What a range of desserts. Lovely coffee. Very friendly people. Great tunes inside the stadium. But uh, from a footballing perspective, yeah, it is recent that I've started to think, well, maybe they can do something. There was a brief time around the time when we started commentating matches uh, for the world feed when they had Asamoa Jan they signed Ishmael Bangura and I thought this could be exciting and it didn't work and that's been a bit the story of Ren until uh, Julian Stefan came in well they they know how to live don't they in in Brittany and within two minutes of the podcast Dave had brought up Galette Saucisse I thought we'd hold out a bit longer Galette being the sort of savoury crepe and they've got these fantastic sausages in the uh, in in Brittany and yeah, it's it's an absolute delight. But Robbie, if we can talk about you know something you know different from Galette Saucisse, what what what's your strongest memory? I would like to come back to Galette Saucisse <laughs> because it's all about the condiment for me. But we'll, we'll we can talk about it later. And I also know the best Galette Saucisse van outside of Rose on Park as well. But 
hopefully we'll get to that later. My, I've had a real mix of emotions at uh, Rowers on Park. I remember once I was, I was on the TGV heading to Brest for a PSG Brest in the Cup and the match got cancelled because of bad weather. And my, the only stop on the TGV was Wren. And they were playing a cup match that night as well. So I made a call. I managed to get, it was the first weekend of January. It was freezing cold. I managed to get into Rose on Park um, in the press box. And I was one of probably four journalists. And there were about 600 people in a 30,000-seater stadium to watch the match against Valenciennes. It finished 1-0. And it was just a pretty turgid evening, all things considered. A far cry from my first ever Ligue 1 commentary match in the stadium in 2008, which was Hatem Ben Arfa's first game for Marseille. It was at Rowers on Park. Ben Arfa was incredible. Marseille were up 3-1, I think. It finished 4-4 with Bruno Cheru scoring in the 94th minute or 95th minute to equalise at 4-4. And Rowers on Park, which was the Stade de la Route de Lorient at the time, was just uh, on fire. It was spectacular. And I thought, this is what it's all about. Andy Scott, you, you were there with me when Wren turned Arsenal over 3-1 a couple of seasons ago now. Um, yeah. What's your strongest memory? Surely not beating Arsenal. I wouldn't do that to you, Matt. No, I think, um, the, I think Dave touched on this before. It's a team, a club who, who maybe haven't achieved a huge amount up until very recently, and that's why we're talking about them today. So that's why I want to pick a recent event because... I was there when they won the uh, the French Cup uh, just over a year ago under Julien Stéphane beating Paris Saint-Germain on penalties in an incredible final. And yes, of course, it's very recent and people might say, oh, well, what about something you know deeper into history? But the reality is that Rennes hadn't won anything for 48 years and um, therefore that moment was uh, was a huge moment in, in the club's uh, history. And uh, a club, of course, who whose only major trophies anyway have been in the French Cup and that was a huge thing for them and a really special moment to be there at Stade de France when they won that and in the manner in which they won it as well. Just very quickly, my, I'd say my Rennes memory, I'm trying to think of a single one um, and, and I'm struggling. For me, Rennes is, <laughs> it, it's all about discovering new talent. I remember very clearly when um, Jan and Villa was, uh, I think I commentated his debut. And I, I'm pretty sure it's Frederick Antonetti who, who, who picked him and um, yeah I just remember seeing this midfielder who was who was tenacious who was good on the ball and, and just looked totally at, at ease in professional football sadly Yann and Villa hasn't quite lived up to to that sort of early promise more recently we've seen Eduardo Camavinga and we'll, we'll we'll talk about him later in the podcast but yeah for me Ren is all about seeing this uh, this conveyor belt of uh, of young talent you're listening to to Le Bourgeur it's our Stade Rene special do rate our podcast on all the different uh, streaming platforms. Get in touch if you have any questions, league1podcast at gmail.com or using the hashtag LeBourgeur on uh, Twitter. Ren certainly looked to be on the right track. Since Julian Stefan took charge in December 2018, they have won the Coupe de France, beating PSG in the final. They've been on an exciting Europa League run and this season they've finished third in Ligue 1. Our producer, Ian Holyman, spoke to a former Wren captain, Petter Hansen, this week, a, a Swedish international who wore the armband um, at Wren between 2007 and 2010. And he thinks that Wren's resurgence is anything but a surprise. And he feels there is real cause 
for optimism these days? It's a cl- club that that deserves it. Uh, it's as you say, it's well organized. The youth teams are doing well. Uh, it's organized around not only around the team but also the club. And they have a, a fantastic training facilities. So hopefully they they uh, they can get consistent now. Um, I should be really happy if it happens. Well, Dave, uh, Andy and Robbie, we've been waiting really for, for so long to see this um, Ren sort of uh, renaissance, if you like. Ever since the Pinot family bought the club back in 1998, Francois Pinot, for those who don't know, is one of the wealthiest um, individuals in France, a tycoon, a businessman and uh, an art collector. He was uh, ranked sixth by Forbes, his fortune uh, is over 30 billion, or was charted at over 30 billion euros back in, in 2018. He's uh, passed on the, the running of the football club to his son, Francois-Henri Pinot, who is an individual I'm very jealous of because his partner is Salma Hayek and he, he basically runs a football club in what a life he has. But why, why have there been all these, all these false dawns? I, I'm going to start with, with Dave. We know that the Pinot family have this huge backing. We know there's the potential as well for a giant in Western France. They, they had one. Uh, in the form of nonce in the 80s and 90s. But why have Wren not yet emerged as as this Western giant? Yeah, Brittany is a real hotbed of football. And you people there are obsessed with football. And there are a lot of clubs there. But uh, yeah, since Nantes, there hasn't been that sustained success. Wren had a go at it and spent really big in the year 2000 after selling Shibani Nonda. They brought in Severino Lucas. They brought in Turdo, an Argentinian, and Luis Fabiano combined fee about 40 million. None of them came off. Apparently, Lucas was very good in training, but on the field, not so good. I think he scored four goals in a single season. And that really conditioned the Pino family's approach to Ren. And they didn't want to spend the same money after that because they didn't get the immediate success that they were looking for with the open checkbook. Um, and while Pierre Driossi was running the club, they only spent over 10 million once. And that was to sign Bangora, who didn't come off. Uh, and then it's only more recently that they've started spending a bit more again, making that loan deal from Bainyong permanent uh, and then signing Rafinha, who I have to admit, in the first couple of months, he looked like Lucas Bis, as the French would say. He looked like another Lucas. He looked awful. But now he is starting to play well and showing the talent that he displayed at uh, Sporting Lisbon. They've got in the translator for him, uh, having learned a little bit from the errors of their ways in the early noughties when they didn't help the integration uh, of these South American players the way that they now realise that they have to because Brittany is a little bit out there on a limb. You, it's uh, very different meteorologically to Brazil or Argentina and uh, the galette saucisse and the charm of that and the friendliness of the people can only take you so far if you're struggling with the language. But we'll come on to the, to the current side and the recent signings they've made. But Andy, do you think that that is part of the problem that the Pino family were, were stung by those failed signings back back in 2000 and there was a sort of shift away from big money signings and towards home production yeah it seems a strange one doesn't it because the as you said the the obviously very very wealthy family and and i think looking from the outside you would say well why don't they throw more money at this and and turn themselves into big challenges because the other thing about the situation at Rennes is i mean the pino uh, francois let me get this right it's francois pino wasn't it who who became the majority shareholder in 1998 so you look at that period, and there was there was a spell in the the sort of early mid two thousands when they looked like they were beginning to really emerge, 
And then they went back the way again, just at a time when you think about the French footballing landscape, because obviously Lyon had that run of seven straight titles and now we're in the midst of Paris Saint-Germain's dominance thanks to the Qatari ownership. But there was that spell, wasn't there, between 2008 and 2012 when the French title was really anybody's for the taking. And you might think now, well, maybe Rennes could have emerged in that, in that period and become a big force. And it just didn't happen. You know, they, they kind of faded back into mid-table mediocrity at that point, really. So it is, uh, it is surprising. I think they've, they've never been um, a family, if you like, to, to really throw money at the project. And even now, you look at the, the money they're spending uh, okay, 20 million, 21 million on Rafinha at the beginning of, um, of the season just finished. But that's an exception. They've never been uh, owners who've really thrown money at the project. So, yes, they were obviously stung by the, by the Luca Severino uh, experiment, Luis Fabiano and, and several others who didn't quite go uh, according to plan. And maybe a combination of that and a realisation that Ren in the wider landscape is not um, I mean, it's not a backwater, but it's, it's maybe not um, a major uh, centre in France that you might think they can draw real, real power and investment towards, like perhaps they think in Lyon and Marseille. And that's maybe contributed to this idea that Rennes is not um, a major power in the French game. But maybe we're getting there now. I think Andy's touched on the, the real crux of the matter. And I think it's not just Rennes. I think it happens in all these sort of provincial parts around France, is that you have to modernise. You have to accept that, that football now, to, to make it at the really top level, it's about being a business, it's about being well-run, it's about being professional, and it's about taking that next step up and putting emotions aside, putting back your regional allegiances, your, 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 your pride at being from Brittany, and, your, you know, I'll mention it again, your Galet Saucis, the, these players, and actually just becoming a huge multinational corporation, which I think is what Olivier Leton tried to put in place, actually. He tried to just pull Ren by the, the bootstraps and just say, let's go. This is 21st century now. This is what football is. And it paid dividend, but it also rubbed a few people the wrong way. But Robbie, do you think, do you think that's a, it's a case of needing to go galettes or she's frites? No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Let me. A, a, Andy touched on the, on, on the good team they had. It was an exciting team sort of in that period, 2008 to 12. I remember Mikel Pagis was a wonderful player to watch, such a, such a skillful player. Jimmy Brion um, came in and uh, was, was a fast and powerful striker. Sadly, he, he lost that power after a knee injury just as he was breaking into the France team. But Robbie, I think you have a, a memory as well of one of Rennes' great, um, great nearly moments. On the, on the last day of a season when they should have got into the championship. It was 2007. It was the season just before we started World Feed Commentary, Matt, and, and they had made it. They were, they were sitting in third place um, until the 93rd minute of their last match of the season. I remember I was watching it and I remember seeing Sylvain Wiltord was, was, was back at the club and he was standing there with the president, um, Saint-Cernin, and they were both there and this was the moment Ren were about to do it. And an Obraniak free kick, a Foverg header into the top corner. And, I mean, Foverg was an okay striker, but this was a moment where he just destroyed Ren Hartz. They were that close to qualifying for the Champions League for the first time ever. And you just, it just summed it all up. It was, this is the moment, and they couldn't do it. It was there, presented to them on a platter, and they didn't take it. And that's when our good friend uh, at the pod, Carlos Bocanegra, joined the club the next year because they were still trying to, to build something. But that hurt just hurt them too much. That that missing out on the Champions League that year just destroyed the club for for I think 
until the last five years. Robbie, I'm, I'm going to stay with you because you mentioned already Olivier Leton's arrival being important. Olivier Leton was uh, a sporting director at Paris Saint-Germain. I know you, uh, you worked with him um, for quite some time at, at, at Paris Saint-Germain. He then moved and took the top job at, at Rennes. Um, and you feel, yeah, you feel he brought a sort of professionalism and a, a ruthlessness that Ren didn't have before. Absolutely, I think uh, he he. In just as a side note, in between Paris Saint Germain and Ren, he did go and also take the top job at a sports investments agency in London, which was owned by Kia Jurabchian. Um, so he was part of the football industry there as well. That was very short lived um, before taking over at Ren. But I think it's, it's important to note because I think that's part of who Olivier Leton is. He's a, he's a football businessman. He was, when we knew him at Paris Saint-Germain, he was, Leonardo had left. He was the assistant sporting director and he had his finger in every pie. He knew absolutely everything that was going on at the club. Some would say that's exactly what he's there for. Um, he, he was involved in the restaurant at the Comte de Loge, in the youth team, in re-signing players. In, in the professional side, in the foundation. He had, he had a real and wanted to have a grasp on everything that was going on. And I think he took that to Wren. And I think at Wren, as I talk about the modernization again of, of, of modernizing a football club like Wren, a lot of people were let go. A lot of other people were brought in. Um, people saw that as a bit of copinage, as we say in French, of just giving mates a job, um, which didn't go down well. And again, he, he had his control of the youth academy. He was very implicated in what Julien Stefan was doing with the first team. Um, he was running the finances and the transfers. And all of this, I think, was important to show Ren what can be done. This is a, about making money. This is about winning, winning at all costs, about having a, a big professional structure. But in the end, I think he just rubbed too many people the wrong way. Okay, just to give a little bit of, uh, of background for those maybe who don't follow it as closely as we do. So um, Olivier Letton was, uh, was the Ren president um, for a relatively short period, two or, two or three years. Um, he had Sabri Lamouchi as coach. Lamouchi got Ren to, to fifth place in 2018. Didn't go so well the next season. Um, so Olivier Letton sacked Sabri Lamouchi, who's since bounced back really impressively with Nottingham Forest in England. And he appointed this young man, Julien Stéphane. Um, Julien Stéphane, the son of the France assistant coach, Guy Stéphane, who is a very experienced trainer himself. He's still only 39 years of age, uh, Julien Stéphane, but is an extremely highly rated young coach. Now, Julien Stéphane and Olivier Leton didn't see eye to eye, it seems, on everything. It seemed like it was a case of one was going to have to go. And interestingly, it was Olivier Leton who, who quit Rennes earlier this season. He's now been replaced by Nicola Holovec, who is now the Wren president, a former Monaco executive. Um, Andy, I'm going to put this one to you. It was a difficult relationship between Olivier Letton and, and, and Julien Stéphane. Do you see it as sort of logical, given the success he's had, given the talent he has, that Julien Stéphane is, is the man who has who has stayed on. Yeah, absolutely, because he, he delivered, uh, touched on it before, he delivered the first piece of silverware in 48 years, and that gives you, uh, French like to say, le legitimacy. You know, it gives him this, uh, this status within the club, within the city, uh, almost makes him untouchable. And even if Olivier Letton was uh, responsible for a lot of the, the big and important and good decisions that have been uh, taken at Rennes in the last couple of years, ultimately, Julien Stéphane 
you know, if you have to choose between the two, if you're the owner of the club and you have to choose between the two, then uh, of course it's going to be Stefan who gets to stay on. And, and uh, you know, so far that's vindicated. He's, he's leading the club on the right path. They've got this new man coming in and, and you'd hope from their point of view that they'll be able to develop a, a good relationship and work together. It's, uh, it's obviously maybe unfortunate for Olivier Leton. He seems to have other projects uh, that he's looking into to come back into the French game, but it was never going to be... Uh, you would think, surely, never any doubt that Julien Stéphane was going to emerge victorious from that particular uh, dispute. There has been a lot of instability at Rennes, uh, almost a rotating presidency, you could say. Letong actually lasted only 18 months. It just felt like more because so much happened in, in that time. Um, Letong's particularity, if that's not too French a way of saying it, is that he was a former professional footballer himself. And that made him closer to the dressing room than a lot of presidents would be. And you felt that with some of the things that were said by particularly the more experienced players within that Rennes squad. Very disappointed to see Olivier Leton go. Um, we just don't know how it's all going to play out now. That Nikola Olvek worked with Vadim Vasiliev, so he's got experience of big signings, of of success, the league and title, playing in the Champions League. They brought in Florian Maurice as sporting director, who'd been head of recruitment at Lyon for 11 years. So um, Olvek doesn't want to have that same say on the professional side of the game that Letong did. He wants to leave that to Julian Stefan and Florian Maurice. So Florian Maurice is still only in his late 40s, despite all that experience. So if those two can stay together and work well together, then yes, that's the, got to be the hope for Ren fans, that this will spell the start of a sustained period of success. Dave, let's, let's talk about Florian Maurice, because it, it's an interesting one. We know that Leon have had quite some success. Um, under Florian Maurice, in terms of the uh, the recruitment, he's been criticised in the last year or so for making certain signings. Um, Jean Lucas, Thiago Mendes, players like that that didn't come off this season. Jean Michel Olas made a, one or two sort of uh, fairly nasty comments, saying that Florian Maurice. Um, uh, I expected to see him join a big club, but he's but he's gone to Rennes. Anyway, he's there. He's head of recruitment. What sort of a talent is he as a recruiter? And what's the situation now? Like, can, can we see? Is Camavinga staying? Who are the players that they're looking to bring in this summer? Well, job titles are important in France, Matt. And, and I think that was the problem at Lyon. If Olas thought that Maurice had the potential to be at PSG or at Barcelona, as he said, then why didn't he give him Juninho's job when Juninho came in? That situation was always going to be difficult when you've got someone who's so well-established as Florian Maurice, who is ready to take the next step on his career path. If you're not going to offer him that opportunity at Lyon, I think it's entirely normal that he looks elsewhere. So he's officially sporting director at Rennes. And it's going to be a major test for him here because Rennes still doesn't have the same attraction as Lyon. We're already seeing that in their summer transfer market targets. I think they've actually already made one quite big mistake, to be honest, which was allowing Jeremy Morel to leave the club because they're light at centre-half. And particularly if you've got a European campaign, even if you think Morel's not a Champions League quality defender anymore at his advanced age, you need him to play the league games because... They wanted to sign Tongi Kouassi. They've missed out on him, the young PSG player who's going to be off to Bayern Munich. They wanted to sign Mohamed Salisou from Valladolid, uh, Ghanaian, but um, he wants to go to England because his mother tongue is English and he fancies the Premier League rather than coming to Rennes. So it's all about how many names are on Maurice and Stefan's shortlist. How many of their prime targets will they be able to get? We know uh, because Nikola Olvek revealed it in a press conference that they're in for Seru Girassi. The Amiens centre-forward, good player. Is he Champions League quality? And Olvek promised that they'd signed three or four that were above Europa League quality, but all the time 
staying measured in the ambitions because he says that's the the mark, the fabric of the club. That's the way that Ren are run, that you you don't try and aim too, too high. You know where your level is. But if you're trying to sign Champions League players, you do have to get that checkbook out. Martin Terrier is another that Florian Maurice spoke about mm. over this weekend. Terrier has shown his Champions League quality. He played brilliantly for Lyon at Leipzig earlier this season, but overall hasn't quite kicked on the way we would have expected him to after doing so well at Strasbourg. There is a player there. Maybe Ren would be the right environment for a player of his reserved temperament to show his qualities better. And then it's also about player retention. Can they keep him by Nyong? Doesn't look like they will. Maybe Marseille won't have the resources. Um, there's been talk of a Qatar move from by Nyong. Um, but also, I mean, we said Maurice did make some mistakes uh, at Lyon as well. Uh, Ren, if they are only spending eight to ten million occasionally, they have to get it right. And with Rafik Gitan, who they signed from Le Havre, uh, we hardly seen him play. There have been various reasons for that, including injury. Jordan Sibacher, almost the same mm. fee from Rans. Flaviante as well hasn't yeah. really. Yeah, so th- up. they can't afford to make many mistakes. Is basically the point I'm trying to make. No, which is which is what Florian Maurice is going to be uh, be very care- careful of. I think. Um, it, it would be nice to see M. M. Bainyong stay. You know, he only signed a permanent deal last year. He's he, he's he's doing very well. I just want to bring in uh, um, another big name. You were listening to to one big name, David Cross, and there on on, on Le Bourge. We're now going to hear from one of Ren's favourite sons, Mikel Silvest, who has um, uh, I wouldn't say a more impressive CV than Dave, but uh, but a different CV and. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, Mikel Silvestre gave us his thoughts on, on Julien Stefan, um, this young coach who, you know, we've been waiting as well in France to have a, uh, our own uh, Julian Nagelsmann or, you know, a very exciting young coach. And perhaps Julien Stefan is, is going to be that man. Let's hear from, from Mikel Silvestre. I've watched uh, some of his sessions and I've been in the dressing room uh, before the games at halftime. And uh, I liked what I hear. You know, I was like, hmm, if I was a player, I would like to have a coach like him because it's a clear message. Uh, it's a good football offensive, always proactive and demanding on the player. So when you are competitors, that's what you want. I mean, having a, a dad already in, uh, like deep into the coaching. Um, He's got a bit more hair than his dad. Yeah. For now. <laughs> for now. Maybe that will change. <laughs> for now. <laughs> we will see with stress. Uh, so it's, it's, I think for him, it's natural. And, uh, and then the question was, uh, is he going to be able to manage uh, a pro dressing room, which is different because you, every time you're going to have uh, 15 players unhappy. And that's, that's where the difficulties are. You know, you have to keep everybody uh, focused and, and positive throughout the season. So, so far, so good. And I think he's, he's, a, he's a fast learner. So it's good for Ren. Yeah, I think having seen uh, Julien Stéphane push Paris Saint-Germain all the way firsthand at the Trophée des Champions, winning that Coupe de France, beating them in the first game between the two in Ligue 1 this season as well. It all shows that tactically he knows exactly what he's doing and perhaps, and what Sylvestre said as well about being in the dressing room, seeing what he says to the players and saying, look, if I played for him, I'd give it everything. I think that's, in modern football, one of the most important things for a coach now is to be able to get your players to assimilate tactically, but also go out with that same passion that you, you need your players to be ready to go to war for you. And that's what, that's what Julien Stéphane 
clearly is able to do. I mean, he was in the dressing rooms the whole time during the World Cup as well. He was very close to the France team, seeing how his dad and Didier Deschamps were working with that team. He's had a fantastic schooling to see what it takes to get his Rennes side all the way. He saw what it took to get France to win the World Cup. So, I mean, there's no better school than that. A little side note on the, on the uh, growth of Rennes as well, and perhaps their place in the transfer market. There was Ismail Assar who, who moved there from Metz a couple of seasons ago. He cost a lot of money. I think it was around 20 million for Ismail Assar. And then they sold him on to English football for a lot of money. And that was that professional model that I was talking about, the, the, the taking Rennes into the next stage. They're there at this stage. They're not your, your Paris Saint-Germain who can buy from overseas. They're just behind Lyon and Marseille for picking off perhaps the very best French talent. And then you have this, this place where you can find a good player who's got a lot of potential, bring him in and sell him off. They're really what the French would call that trampoline club in between, ready to, to take someone and just launch them onto that next step. Ismail Assal was a good example. Mbignon might yet be a good example. These players that come in, Flaviente as well could be uh, that sort of player. It took him a little while to settle, but I think towards the end of this season, we saw him starting to, to find his feet. Benjamin Andre was one who who moved yeah. on to 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 Ren. I mean uh, to to Lille. They've they've got good players. I think that's their model. And perhaps and to go back again to the reasons why Olivier Letong moved on. Perhaps he was trying to go a little too fast. Perhaps he was shooting a little bit too high. And perhaps you know Ren felt, look, this is our place. The owners felt this is our place. Let's consolidate here not risk too much. Yeah, Robbie, we say springboard, not, not, not trampoline, but that's okay. Trampoline's good. Dave, Dave and Andy, just bringing you in a bit on Julian Stefan because you've, you've coached, sorry, no, you've not coached, you've commentated um, Ren uh, quite a lot in recent years. Can, can, tell us a bit about what he's, you know, what you think he's like and how, it, how he gets his, his, his team to play. Um, and Andy, maybe first of all, uh, yeah, well, the, the interesting thing about Ren actually is that J- Julien Stefan has shown himself to be quite um, versatile, if that's one way of putting it. I mean, the, Robbie touched on the Paris Saint-Germain game at the beginning of this season when they won 2-1 and everybody was excited about the prospect at, at the end of August of Ren even possibly challenging for the title. And in that game, they played a, a 5-3-2 uh, or a 3-5-2 formation. And, and one of the, the key things about this way of playing is, is the fullbacks, of course. And Ren have... Um, in the fullback positions, two really great players in Amari Traore and Fetou Mawasa. Uh, Traore, who, you know, when we talk about player retention being important, I mean, Amari Traore has been linked with Paris Saint-Germain. That's how impressive his season was uh, with Ren. Just boundless energy up and down that right-hand side. Fetou Mawasa on the left uh, is a player who spent uh, last season, 2018-19, when Ren were winning the cup. Mawasa was actually away on loan at a Nîmes team doing very well uh, having been promoted to the top division. And Mawasa came back to Rennes last summer because they lost Rami Bensevaini to uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach, the uh, very impressive Algerian international. And that's one of the things. Rennes did lose a lot of players last year after winning the Cup, really half their team, and managed to rebuild successfully. So they played this 5-3-2 formation in a number of games. But more as, as the season has gone on, uh, we saw Julien Stefan play perhaps more like a 4-4-2 really, more of an emphasis on the wide attackers uh, in that sense. And, and we talked about Flaviente, uh, who was a, a big money signing for Rennes and had one or two problems with injuries and suspension as well at the start of the season. But when he came into the team, he had his moments. Rafinha, 20-odd million, 
took his time, but but impressed really. And you know, Roman Del Castillo and by Neon can play wide, so they have lots of options in these wide attacking areas. And Julian Stefan has this ability to switch between formations, which I guess all good coaches should have. Yeah, I think what Andy says is is spot on that they've got versatile players, and I'd add Benjamin Burijo to that list and uh, Adrian Unu, very important team players who can play in a number of positions. Flexible coach and a flexible mentality, uh, which first came through in appointing Lamushi, I think, because before that, you look at the list of coaches that they'd had in the past 15 years. And when you see the likes of Lacombe, Antonetti, Corbis, Gorku for the second time, all they needed was Eli Bopa and Antoine Comboare, and they'd have completed the full house of league and coaching bingo. And they needed to move away from that. And I'm really glad that they have. Um, I think it's going to be a very, very challenging season for Julian Stefan. The recruitment has to go well this summer. We saw last year they were abysmal in the Europa League after everyone had talked them up so much for the way they'd performed in the previous season's Europa League. Uh, what impressed me about Stefan was the way he stayed calm during that run of 10 games without a win, um, seven of them in the league and three of them in the Europa League last autumn. I think that's when the tensions between Letton and Stefan really came to the fore that Stefan started to feel that he wasn't getting the right backing from Letton, perhaps even that his job was under threat, which seems ridiculous now that Rennes have finished in their highest ever position. But they'll need a favourable draw and they'll need Roson Park to get right behind their players if they're to stand a chance of, well, even securing themselves European football post-Christmas. Of being the new Atalanta. Who knows? Who knows? Look, Ren are going to have to buy very well this summer. They're also going to have to uh, rely on their youth academy. And uh, luckily for Ren, um, their incredibly productive academy has been a feature of the uh, club's success uh, over the last 25 years. The names are, uh, are incredible. There are 30 or 40 top-level footballers who have come through um, Rennes Youth Academy, the best known, Sylvain Wiltord, Mikael Silvestre, Johan Gorkouf, Usman Dembele, and uh, most recently, Eduardo Camavinga. Last year, the CIES Football Observatory had Rennes as uh, fifth in the world rankings for youth development, behind only Real Madrid, Barcelona, Lyon, and Manchester United. Rennes were, were top dogs in France for many years. Lyon have um, overtaken them. Leon have been incredible in uh, in recent seasons, but uh, it's 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 a real sort of uh, trademark of this football club. Uh, our man uh, Peter Hansen, who spoke to Ian Holyman, he works with uh, the youth team of Sirius in the uh, Swedish top flight these days, and uh, he takes much of what he learned on the training ground at Rennes with him as he coaches uh, youngsters these days now in, in Switzerland. So let's hear again from Peter Hansen. There's one thing that I remember that I, uh, that I bring, uh, and that was with the, with the young players. They had higher, uh, Ren had higher expectations on, on the youth players that they had, yeah, they should be stronger, they should be able to run more than, than the, the first team players. And that, that I, at least I, I'm trying to get it in here, but it's difficult. But... Uh, no, they were really good. They were in the in the yeah. They were quite young then. I think they were like nineteen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. A couple of players, and they were playing like they yeah that 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 like like the older players. They were uh, they were adapted in the first team. Peter Hansen now coaching, of course, in Sweden and not in uh, Switzerland. As as I said, sorry about that. But uh, Robbie, you can tell us maybe a, a little bit more. I know that you're. Um, a keen observer of youth development in in France in general, um, but you've also been f 
following closely what's been happening at Wren in, in the last 20 years or so. Absolutely. Well, it was, it was to give the facts, it was 1983 when a certain Patrick Rompillon uh, stopped his playing career and moved immediately into coaching in the Wren Youth Academy. Just as a coach in the Youth Academy, he, he was in charge of the under-19s. He quickly even made his way up to an interim position with the first team um, before going back down to the Youth Academy. So that was 1983. Patrick Rompion's brother, Gilles Rompion, was a Saint-Étienne stalwart, France international as well. Very good footballing family. But uh, Patrick had a thing for developing youth players. He really wanted to make an impact. And in 1987, this is where Rennes really took the next step. They gave Patrick Rompion the keys to the house, as we would say in France, and said, this is your baby now. He, he introduced, they were one of the first clubs to, to have a permanent school, as you were talking about the, the development of, of, of players and, and, and not just on the football pitch, but also off it. I think Wren were one of the first to, to have private education for their, for their students coming through the footballing ranks. So that was in 1987. And they also set up an incredible scouting network, not just of players around the Brittany area, but above all, in Paris and the Paris region. And they started picking off in the, in the late 90s, mid-90s, late 90s, the very best that was on offer in all of the Paris region and offering them contracts to go to, to, go to Rennes. Um, it started paying dividends in the early 2000s and by the mid-2000s, they were the number, rank, number one ranked youth academy in all of France. I think they won it four years in a row, 2005, 6, 7, 8, and then again in, in 2010, 2011. So, and this was all Patrick Rompion's doing. Now, the personal story, in 2009, I was contacted, I was living in the French countryside out in the west of France, and uh, a local football tournament called the Montigu Tournament um, contacted me and said, look, we've never had an Australian team. Do you think you could help us bring one out for our 25th anniversary? Now, this is a very famous youth academy tournament around the world for, for under-16s. Long story short, an Australian team came out and I, I chaperoned them around the two-week tournament and I took the coaches to Nantes because Nantes had a fabled youth academy as well and also we went and met Patrick Rompion at Rennes and had a tour of the, the Rennes Academy in 2009, talked about how they work. There was a, a young Stefan Mbia at the club restaurant where, at the next table to us where we were, where we were eating and uh, it was really interesting to see all these coaches talking about youth development, um, the Australians... Uh, held their heads up high. They got a draw with Mali in the end after losing to Alphonse Ariola, Paul Pogba and Luca Dins, France side 4-1 in the opening game. They also lost to Germany. But a uh, fantastic experience for them. Side note again, three of them are now professional footballers from that young Australian team. So uh, there you go. It was a fantastic experience. We went and saw Nantes play. But uh, Patrick Rompion was such an interesting character there that we met with the with the Australian coaching staff and and you could see the passion and also the professionalism. He, he said it costs, like talking figures, it costs this much money to produce a young player in France for one year um, in terms of education, board, food, training, everything. So if you can sell, and I think that the case in point was if you can sell someone like a Stefan Mbia or, or a Johan Gorkuf for a certain amount of money, that money goes immediately back into the youth academy and will ensure the youth academy's budget for perhaps, you know, six, seven, eight years to come. And all of that was, was how Wren had decided right from 1987 when Rompion took over. They said, 
this is a way we're going to run a part of this football club now to, to make money, to run itself, taking kids from Paris, bringing them the likes of Mvia, Dembele, all the way through, uh, so many fantastic players. Mbappe's brother, Jiraz Kemboa Koko, was, was another one who went there to play football. And uh, a, a really interesting and no, no surprise to see them, even still, ranked so highly in producing such. And it's all the foundations that Patrick Rompion laid there. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, Robbie, that one uh, individual can have such a, an impact on, on what has now become the DNA of, of, of the football club. There's no question Patrick Rompion had uh, charisma and incredible vision and, uh, and, and an eye for talent. And they've, they've continued to, to ensure that they have top-level youth coaches. Uh, Julian Stefan uh, mm. um, learned or got his uh, badges, cut his teeth with the, with the, with the youth, youth setups there. They've had Laundry Chauvin in, in, in recent years, and it is still a really important part of the team. And I think it's interesting as well that so many of these Paris kids, they, they thrive when they move to clubs outside of Paris. And there's no question that there are fewer distractions when you're in Rennes or in Monaco or, or in Auxerre to when you're sort of living in Paris and you've got still got all your mates and, 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 and your family around. But it's the Paris talent there is Breton talent as well. I mentioned Johan Gourcuff, Roman Donze is, you know, famously a, a one-club man, terrific servant. And actually, Eduardo Camavinga has grown up in, in, in the region, hasn't he? Uh, um, and he is the latest jewel. And what a jewel. What a jewel he is. Uh, Dave, Eduardo Camavinga, let's just talk about the current gem. We're hoping, of course, that he stays on. We know Real Madrid are very, very keen. He's 17 years of age already playing for France at, at under-21 level. Um, is he already the real deal? Definitely. And Nico Olvek said last week that Kamavinga will stay, that he seems to have that similar similar maturity to Kylian Mbappe, um, really. The, the way he conducts himself, the way he carries himself, the way he plays. Defensive midfield is not a position where a 16-year-old should be able to play the way that he does play. It demands more than playing as a wide attacker or as a centre-forward in terms of your tactical awareness and bossing other players who might be more than double your age around, telling them where to be on the pitch. Um, Kamavinga does that really well. He's strong physically, passes the ball very well. He makes the team better. Um, when it comes to youth development, though, and I'm, you, you just do wonder, Kamavinga is a once-in-a-generation sort of player he'd have come through I'm sure no matter what the circumstances were no matter what centre de formation he was at in France Eduardo Camavinga you'd identify him and he would start playing um he's now yeah the the most important player in their team at the age of 17 and and that is that is ridiculous really but you yeah but you still have to find them you still have to to you know spot their talent and pick them out of course if if Camavinga is 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 playing Top, you know, for a top level club, but I mean, you know, he he, he had a very he had a very unusual and, and and difficult background, and perhaps if he'd have grown up in another region, he might not have been picked up professionally. But I, I no, I do I do take your point completely. Before we hear from 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 Andy Scott, he's desperate to come in. Go on there, go on then, Andy. I'll I'll bring you in first. Yeah, no, just just two things. I think, but um, just as a slight aside, it's worth pointing out that there is there is a there is a side strategy by Ren, which is obviously um, they kind of know their place in the wider food chain of French football, and they have gone to some smaller clubs like Nancy to buy Mawasa, Mess to buy Sar, and then they, and then they sell them on. Though they still have Mawasa, they probably will eventually sell him on for a profit. They've sold on Sar at a profit. Camavinga, um, 
I, I, I just want to sign a slight word of caution, right? Because Eduardo Camavinga is 17. He's 17, right? I don't know what you guys were doing when you were 17. It's, it's you know, he's a young man. He's a young kid. And um, there is still a lot of time to go in terms of his development as a player. We, we get, yes, he's the real deal. And he was incredible against Paris Saint-Germain at the beginning of, of the season that's, that's gone by. Um, I would say one thing is that I saw a lot of Wren in the sort of six to eight weeks before the season was suspended and, and didn't restart. And I, I remember in particular um, the cup quarter final. They played against this uh, fourth division team, Belfort, on a very cold night in Sochaux in February. Um, and Camavinga struggled. He really struggled in that game. And without Steven Nzonzi alongside him for, uh, for, the last, for that spell of the season, I think it, things might have been a little bit different. That signing was important for Ren. It was important for Camavinga to just give him a bit more experience alongside him just to help him uh, cope with these games. He looked like he needed a rest. He's a young man. And the concern, of course, is that we're going to see him leave. Now, we want Ren to keep him, and he should stay to help his development. But I also just think in the wider scheme of things that it's sad, is it not, that we're at this point where we're thinking, we're hearing Nikola Olvek say he's going to stay. And, and everyone's probably thinking, well, is he going to stay? Or are they going to be able to turn down an offer from Real Madrid, which may very well come in? Real Madrid have been linked with him very strongly. And what I hope is that he stays at Ren for at least one yep. more year. Why not two more years? Because he's only 17. And there's still a danger at that age that he could go too soon and not quite be the player that we all think he will be. But you see, this is this is the example that Kylian Mbappe has sort of shown people that, you know, to launch your career, it's actually best to conquer your domestic league first. And Ryan Shirky could, e could easily have joined Manchester United or another top team at the age of 16. He stayed at Lyon. So we're hoping, yes, that this is the start of a new trend and that these youngsters are saying, just to touch on what you were saying, at 17, I was actually winning... Uh, chess tournaments in northwest <laughs> london so you know it, it it can be done andy um but but, but let, let, let's bring in mikhail Silvestre because this is certainly somebody who knows um knows what it's like to come through the academy at Rennes to to break into the national team to go on and have a, a big big career here's mikhail Silvestre talking about eduardo camaving a lot of big clubs are chasing him and um looking very closely at him to see uh whether or not he would fit uh the club he is re reading the game really well, and because his technique is uh, is is tremendous, then uh, it's easy easy for him. I would say easier for him to to make the right choices at the right moment. Um, so he masters uh, the transition as well. Uh, yeah, it's it's impressive. So I'm curious to see where where he will be in two three years time. Well, I think uh, I speak for all of us as league and commentators when when I hope that he's still at Ren in two to three years' time. I really think it's important, and perhaps to what Andy and, and Dave were saying about Eduardo Camavinga earlier, what, what examples does he have of young players who make that first move as soon as possible and actually make it? I mean, there are so many young players who were considered the future stars of French football who leave at 17, 18, and they don't make it. I mean, the obvious examples are, are Letalic and Cinema Pongol of, of Ali Adier, these players who, who go on and, and they do make it eventually. Gael Kakuta, Gabriel Oberton. Exactly. And, and Real Madrid, more likely, I mean, there's an obvious Rafael Varane uh, exception to that rule, who's an exceptional player, but there's always a, an exception to the rule. But how many do go on to make it? And normally big clubs buy at 24, 25, 26, don't they? When someone is already a world-class player. I think, Rob, 
the key would be if he does get sold, whether it's this summer or next summer, is that you do what Saint-Etienne have been quite good at doing in recent seasons with Kurt Zuma or William Saliba, is that you get the money coming into the club because you need the money and it helps your development as a club, but you also get the player back for at least one year on loan. And so that would be my advice to Monsieur Olvec, Mrs. Olvec, Maurice and Stefan, if they do have to sell Eduardo Camavinga to Real Madrid, make sure that they get that clause, that they get him back for another year at least. Well, it's going to be a fascinating one uh, to watch. I, for one, very much hope to see him uh, showcasing his talents in the Champions League with, uh, with Ren this season. Um, do, uh, do rate our podcast. You're listening to Le Beaujeu, the official League Arm podcast. Um, we've got a big competition coming up for you, by the way. You can win a, uh, a Ligue 1 shirt of your choice. So do, do stay tuned. In a few minutes, we'll, we'll bring you the, um, the fascinating uh, challenge that you will have to try to win uh, that shirt. Now, a little moment of nostalgia because uh, Ian had a, a lovely chat with, with Petter Hansen. We have fond memories of Petter Hansen, big, strong uh, Swedish centre-back and a real leader in what was a, a very exciting Ren side. We've talked about the good coaches that Ren have had in recent uh, times, Sabri Lamushi and the current coach, Julian Stefan. Uh, they've had some characters and some coaches in the past. Uh, Petter Hansen played notably for Pierre Dreyossi, for Guy Lacombe, and for Frederic Antonetti. Here is what he has to say about those guys. I think Pierre and, uh, and Lacombe, Guy was, was quite similar to a, a Swedish coach. They were really good in, in uh, putting the team in place. They were good organized and, uh, uh, and uh, they... they they build the team from from the from the defenders and forwards. Uh, so no, they were really good tactical coaches. Uh, Antonetti was more. He was more like, I don't say a, a more modern, but he was more uh, a, a trainer who wanted to have the ball more and to keep the ball in the team and to play around. And and he was also uh, he was he's actually one of the the maybe one of the best coaches that I had because he was focused on offense and defense so he he was uh, i think he was he was really good but i i have to say i have had uh, almost through all my career i have had uh, fantastic coaches uh, i have to say i was i've been lucky uh, actually but uh, i think uh, antonetti is one is probably one of the, the top 3 i have to say david crossen are you surprised that peter hansen has so much positive um, so many positive things to say about uh, about Frederick Antonetti and the fact that he can be an attacking coach and a defensive coach. No, Frederick Antonetti is, uh, has been a fixture on the French scene throughout our time here. The the voluble coach. I think if you if you like Antonetti, you're going to love him because he's got that presence and uh, he must be quite amusing to play for. And I can understand Hansen's affection, but it sort of ties in with what I said a little bit earlier in the podcast. Do you see Frederick Antonetti being a Champions League coach? I never did. Uh, even when he was in the Europa League, I, I was at Rennes Europa League games, the one season they had in Europe under him. And you could see that he was excited. He felt like that was the big stage, which I thought was interesting. And it was, it was nice to see his enthusiasm, but also sort of said to me that that's, that was at the peak of, of his ambitions as far as he thought he could go with a football club. Um, I, I don't know what the other boys think about that. Maybe I'm being harsh on him. Andy? Uh, oof. Frederick Antonetti. I mean, yeah, he's 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 a man of um, of certain capabilities. But when you're talking about a club who who have ambitions of competing in the Champions League, I've always 
I think when when you have uh, an international perspective, which obviously we do because we we cover league on from an international perspective. Sometimes you 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 are disappointed when you see a, a a French club, maybe a middling French club, and and they go for one of those kind of you know uh, run of the mill uh, appointments like an Antonetti or Comboire. You think why not target something a bit more exciting, a bit more international, a bit more you know a bit more ambitious, and and maybe that's unfair on Antonetti because he has done a terrific job at certain clubs in the French game, just as Comboire and, and others have. Is he Andy? Is he is is he still officially the manager of Mets? Because I know that he 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 took a back seat because uh, his wife was unwell, and it was uh, Vincent Ognon who, you know, is obviously seen as as the Mets coach now. Is 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 Antonetti still involved? Uh, he's taken a he's taken a back seat, hasn't he? Because he had to go back to I mean for, for the contest. Yeah, but Ognon, Corsica, Ognon says he's he still he still has very regular contact with him. I I think, in my opinion, you're being. I, I like Fredo. I think he's top man. I think I think and I think he's a good coach. I do understand what you're saying. But he's, he's such a personality and those, uh, you know, animated uh, performances on the bench. He goes absolutely berserk. I, I, I love it. And once when I was down in Corsica um, recording a feature on, on Bastia, and I think Antonetti was out of work at the time. And so he was obviously down in his uh, native Corsica. And he, uh, I contacted him and he was very happy to come and talk to us about football in, in Corsica. And he was like royalty. It was very funny. We met him in this, in this hotel and everyone was so excited to see you know, it's funny because he kind of knows everybody. It's like the whole island knows Frederick Antonetti. I like that. I like that. But we're going to bring Robbie in on Ren fans because we want to talk about the fans um, at, at Roson Park. We've talked about our, our different experiences there. Um, Andy, myself and Ian Holyman, I believe, was it Dave? No, it was Ian. We're, we're, we're at Roson Park for that famous victory over Arsenal. The atmosphere was incredible that night. Um, they can be quite noisy, can't they, Robbie? Down in uh, in Brittany? Absolutely, they can be. They have the 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 Roazon cop behind the behind the goal, the the red and black cop end. Um, it's a it's a good stadium because it's old style. It's sort of two tiers and all the way around and close to the close to the ground. There's steep tiers on on either side of the the, the sidelines as well. It's a it can generate a fantastic atmosphere. Um. I love going to those grounds, a ground like Roson Park, uh, on a smaller scale, somewhere like Brest or, or Nîmes, even uh, somewhere like Caen, the Stade Malherbe, who are down in the second division now, where these centres where you can, you can feel that the team has the local support, has people behind them. The only thing with Rennes is that it's a big city um, and it's a university town and sometimes the support can be a little transient when they when they're winning and and it's and the weather is nice which is not always the case you can feel that feel rowers on park and it creates a great atmosphere but if but if things are a little bit down maybe the 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 year of freshmen the first year of university students aren't into their football so much the locals don't travel in so much there are there are there are many factors that that need to come together the first one is results on the pitch playing good football which they are under Julien Stefan and when that's the case and when there's a good feeling around the club, I think it's got a fantastic... And I, I don't like saying English style, but I, d- I think there is something more Anglo about the way they support their club. And the same of the Normandy and Brittany clubs. And I think it's something refreshing and passionate and, and quite boisterous. It's not, it's not a swear word, Robbie. English, you're allowed to say it. Andy, is it true that you're... It's a um, swear word in Australia, m- man. <laughs> you think you're about moving <laughs> to, uh, to rent? Is that true? 
Oh, I've I've um I've I've talked I've talked to uh to Dave about this quite a bit about you know the idea of you know is is there a more attractive place to be in France maybe when when Paris has been a difficult place during this pandemic and you think well maybe we could go somewhere else and uh, and a mid-sized city with stuff going on so you think of places like Strasbourg or Bordeaux or Toulouse or Rennes which is only an hour and a half away from Paris on a TGV um it's it's a vibrant city it's a university city as Robbie said it's got lots going for it great food of course and um and of course the football is an attraction too and and i was thinking uh, you know you talk about the 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 connection with the the british mentality i mean i i was in ren in september when they played celtic in the europa league and obviously ren brittany has uh, celtic connections and as a scot you feel that and and i i walked to the ground with uh, just behind the celtic fans several thousand of them who did a march to the stadium terrific atmosphere um that they created on a very sunny day in september and the locals were all kind of dumbstruck as they saw the Celtic fans go past but it was a great atmosphere Rennes is is a is a compact city you can walk from the center to the ground along the banks of the Vilaine river in about half an hour and you come to the stadium and it's it's a really nice place to go and when the stadium's full and you know it's 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 a really great place to see a game of football so I think anybody who's going to be potentially traveling there for a Champions League game next season let's hope that Rennes make it to the group stage I think they're in for a real treat. I love a stadium that you can reach on foot from the train station and the city centre, and that is the case in Rennes, even though I hear that Robbie Thompson usually takes a taxi. That's just the way he rolls. Um, but I think what was key with me with Rouergeon Park was renaming it. I mean, being known as Stade La Route de Lorient, as a Rennes fan, I'd have hated that. How can you have another league and club in the name of your own stadium? I mean, as a Newcastle fan, if St James's Park was called Stadium of the Road to Sunderland, I'd have found it absolutely abysmal. So thankfully, they sorted that out in 2015 and, and changed the name. I do catch taxis to Roseon Park, Dave. You're absolutely spot on. Generally, because I'm running late and there's the taxi rank just outside the station. But getting home to the hotel after a game by taxi is nigh impossible. So I do walk back. <laughs> Very interesting. Should, should we? <laughs> can, I, can, I, can I just make one more quick point? Because we talked about the Ren as a city. I think, it's, I think it's worth saying, because also Robbie said at the beginning, he, he made the reference to, to Bayer Leverkusen, this idea that Ren are underachievers. Um, and and I, I looked this up yesterday, and of the, of the, bear with me, of the 13 largest cities in France, only two of them have never had a, a team win the French League. One of those is Toulouse. And that will not surprise people because Toulouse is a rugby city. Uh, the other one is Rennes, which is the 11th largest city in France, um, but has never been never, the football team has never been the, the French champions. And in terms of the all-time league on table, Rennes are fifth, right? But they've never won the league. And the only other team in the all-time league on table up there to have never won the league is Metz, who very nearly won it in 1998. If you remember, they just missed out to Lens, I think, on the final day. But Rennes. This season, finishing third, is the highest ever finished. So that just emphasises the extent to which this is an underachieving club going back down the years. Some, some very good stats there from League 1 commentator Andy Scott, who is eyeing uh, a job on the Wren tourist board um, <laughs> in, the, in, in the coming seasons. Petter Hansen um, knows Roseland Park better than all of us, um, and he enjoyed playing in front of those fans at, as it was called at the time, Stade de la Route de Lorient. They were always in the stands and they were always making noise. Uh, so it was, uh, every, all the home games were, were fantastic to play. Uh, and they weren't, yeah, of course, after the cup final, it wasn't that funny to go <laughs> to go in the city. But I have to say, for, for uh, no, they have a really good uh, 
audience, and they're they're all in the stands. It's always full. It was at least full uh, when I played there, so that was nice. Well, it was great to hear from Petter Hansen. It was great to hear from Mikael Silvestre in this podcast as well. Um, and it is going to be very, very interesting to to keep your eyes on Stad Rene in the coming seasons, in particular this season or this, let's say, next season, and their Champions League campaign. As promised, before we go. Um, a chance to to win a Ligue 1 shirt of your choice. All you've got to do is tell us why you are looking forward to the 2020-21 season and we will pick out the best, most original, funniest answer and we will be announcing the winner in the first podcast of next season. So please do send us your answers to our usual email, league1podcast at gmail.com. Dot com. Tell us why you're looking forward to next season and you might have a brand new Ligue 1 shirt winging its way over to you. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Le Bourge this season. Thank you to David Crossan, uh, Andy Scott and Robbie Thompson today. It's been uh, great to have your insight on Stad Rene. Um, Robbie, what's your prediction for, for, for Ren and the Champions League next season? Oh, well, depending on how they buy... Um, because I think it's a big step up for them. Uh, Europa League, third place, squeezing through, did it on the last day, match at home, Rose on Park, coming to the, coming to the party and uh, squeezing third place into the Europa League and making it all the way to the semi-finals of the Europa League. Brilliant. Andy? Uh, I think it's a good chance that Rem will be straight into the Champions League group stage because it depends who wins the Europa League, of course. That will be decided oh, no, in I meant, August. No, I meant they play in the group stage and finish third. Ah, okay. No, yeah. no, they well, go. I, I, well, one way or the other, of course, the, the, the qualifying rounds, by the way, will not be until September for Ren. It's one thing to point out uh, because of the delay to next season starting. I think there's a good chance that Ren will get there. It depends on the draw. Uh, I wouldn't have big ambitions of them going far in Europe, but I think they can continue to do well domestically under Julian Stefan. He's a very, very exciting coach. Dave? Yeah, I think I mentioned earlier, I think they're going to find it tricky to target anything more than third place in the group. I think also because their squad is not going to be the largest squad, that um, Julian Stefan's going to have some tricky choices. That You might see them fading because of the European campaign down to 6th, 7th, 8th in Ligue 1. And then you've got to decide, are we targeting finishing top three again to try and get back into this competition? It's, it's a very tricky scenario for all involved. Yeah, I'm going to go with Wren to lose 5-0 to Wolves in a playoff uh, for the group stage over two legs. And then, after a slow start to the season, to pick up and to win the Europa League, and um, and to win Liga. There you go. Big calls. Big and calls win from, uh, from, from myself. <laughs> um, Wolves, are, Wolves are strong at the moment, but that's a whole, a whole different podcast. Andy Scott, David Cross and Robbie Thompson. Thanks, everybody. From me, Matt Spiro, it's time to say goodbye. We'll see you again soon. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thomas! The Santetiana surely won it in the 89th minute.